Hello and welcome to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. The 200th episode of Beyond Well. 200 episodes. 200 shows. Hardly a stinker in the whole bunch. We'd like to visit some of these episodes that you might have missed. We did several shows on anxiety and we're going to highlight some of the best in the next few weeks. Before we get going, we'd like to thank Active Recovery TMS for the support of our show. TMS is your choice for transcranial magnetic stimulation in the Pacific Northwest with neighborhood offices near you to make it convenient and they work with your insurance to make sure you're covered. For more information or to figure out if you qualify for treatment, go to activerecoverytms.com. Last week, we threw back and revisited our chat with the Anxiety Sisters, Episode 1. As you know, you can't have Episode 1 without Episode 2, so here you go. Part 2 of the Anxiety Sisters. Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. Today, we have Part 2 of our two-part interview with the authors of the Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. Abby Greenberg and Maggie Sarachek. I want to talk about the change, and I don't know if it's the same for you two as I'm seeing it, but I started this this really heavy-duty reporting on mental illness 13 years ago, and I would go to cocktail parties and tell them what I was reporting on, and people would look at me like, oh, we'll go to the other side of the room. Thank you very much. We don't want to talk about that. I have seen, especially during the pandemic, this busting open of people's willingness to actually talk about how they're suffering and talking to each other about how do we find community and find support for one another. Are you experiencing the same thing that there has been a sea change as of late because of the pandemic? Yeah. Very often, unfortunately, we don't know what we have until it's gone. Yeah. So I think during the pandemic, when we were all very isolated, suddenly I think people really understood how important human connection is. Yeah. And we really all, we all need it. Even introverts who say, I don't even like people, but it doesn't matter because we all, I mean, human beings are a social species, right? Mm -hmm. And Harry Harlow famously said, a lone monkey is a dead monkey. We are designed to connect with one another. That's why we have mirror neurons so that Mm -hmm. we will smile at the other, at another human and they'll smile back. Yeah. So I think the pandemic really showed us how important that connection is. So our community grew tremendously. Did it really? Wow. During the pandemic, because I think people were looking for, for connection. And yeah. they were, a lot of people were isolated. A lot of people felt isolated. Even if they weren't physically isolated, they felt isolated. We were all very, you know, it was a very frightening time. And I certainly, I noticed that. Uh, what, what did you notice, Mags? Anything interesting? I always think that the stigma around talking about mental illness in many ways, and in part, that's the younger generation's very good at talking about what they need. And I think the stigma has lessened, although what I always say, and you probably saw see this in your corporate work, is that people are much gentler now if someone says, I have depression, or I have anxiety, or I have bipolar, or whatever the issue is, except they're still not so comfortable if someone says, I'm anxious, I can't make it tonight, or I can't uh-huh. get to work, mm-hmm. or I, yeah. I need you to do this for me, or... I I can't call you back, you know? So I think that the, that people are fine with someone saying I have anxiety and depression, as long as it sort of doesn't affect their functioning Uh in a way that would affect that person too much. 
this is, I want to really pull on this thread because if you said to someone, I'm getting treatment for leukemia, which my daughter was, and everyone understands that you're going to be tired, that the chemo is going to make you less able to do functioning. They're going to offer you all kinds of accommodations. If you say, I have anxiety, I have really profound anxiety today. Well, they're like, yeah, but you should still come to work. There is a, an absolute disconnect between the accommodations we're making for people who have been open about their mental illnesses versus the other. And I would say that it is actually the time to start taking those concerns to HR, that there is enough influence, especially among young activists for being super open about what you need and asking for accommodations. And it's protected, you're protected under the American with Disabilities Act. Why not be open and actually demand the kind of accommodations that you might need to actually get through your work? I don't understand. Maggie, Maggie and I show MRI slides at all of our workshops. Yeah. Because as soon as people see it on an MRI, as soon as they see what anxiety looks like in the yeah. brain, they're like, wow, it's a real thing. Yes, it's a real thing. It's physical. Yeah. Because the word mental, right? Mental, it's very hard. It's very like, where is mental? It's very hard. Where is the mind? It's sort well, of. Well, for the longest time, I was calling it brain illness. And then that's what we call it. We call it brain. We, because we, yeah. I know we still use the term mental illness just because that's the term people use, but we often use the term brain illness because we want people to know that, as Abby said, you can see that on an MRI, it yeah. is in the brain and it's, you know, your amygdala is going a little nuts there yeah. and less access to the frontal lobe, your sort of decision making yeah. and planning. And we found that anxiety sufferers get a lot of comfort and relief from hearing about the process neurologically, physiologically, and it is, it is all that. Maggie, who runs our social media so brilliantly, she tells me every day, people are always saying, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't, I didn't realize this was real. I thought yeah. I was the only one. It's so healing. Some of the work in sort of the neuroscience that I just totally resonate with is a physician who I heard say, we image every other part of the body, except when it comes to mental illness. And yes. so if you see the work that they're doing at Stanford with the SAINT program, where they're actually taking MRI images of the exact area of the brain that is overactive, delivering that kind of radio frequency to either slow it down or in the case of depression, to give it a little bit more juice. I'm just like, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're yes. actually getting somewhere. Yes. Yeah. It's so impressive. Some of the stuff they're doing, even with depression and like taking someone's symptoms and actually hitting the part of the brain yeah. that will get that specific symptom. Uh-huh. And I just, I think it's really fascinating. It um, feels like that's actual progress. And I yes. don't know if you agree with me on the disappointment and the what is it now, almost a 20 year obsession with psychopharmaceuticals that we just sort of put into the body and hope some of it bathes the brain in the right way. <laughs> and of course it did for some and not for others. Mm -hmm. And in the case mm -hmm. of my husband, it led to his suicide, but I really believe that this more targeted therapies, this more true scientific inquiry into what is happening is, is going to be the most promising part of the research into mental illness. I really do. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk a lot about medication in our book and we are not in any way anti-medication and yeah. we're both on medication, but there has to be something else too, yeah. because there are many people for whom medication is not appropriate or doesn't work. And this 
is so exciting, some of the work being done. Abby and I just did a workshop on the idea of shame, which also they can see on an MRI. And But we were talking about um, how this, this man, Robert Smith, who's a professor that we interviewed, very brilliant guy, was talking about how there's this whole legacy in Western culture of it starting in the 17th century where the church, science was taking off and the church basically said, we're in charge of the soul, like, and the mind, and you're in charge of the body. Yeah. They would say to scientists, if you want to look inside the body after someone has died, you have to decapitate them first. Wow. You can't look in the head. And that legacy of science and medicine just sort of focusing on the separate physical. parts. Yeah, totally. the separate parts. Totally. The, dis- I, the disembodied head. Yeah. Yeah. I was in Chicago and the Uber driver was taking me and she said, what are you doing in Chicago? And I said, I'm going to speak here. And she said, what for? And I said, oh, it's a mental health conference. And she says, it's about damn time they put the head back on the body. And oh, I was yes. like, from the yes. mouths of an Uber driver, of course, she just nails exactly what I'm attempting exactly. to say, right? So, so I do think it's like that we had so little research, you know, and in severe mental illness, like schizophrenia, and really, we haven't come up with anything new. Yeah, in decades. I mean, that that just shocks me, because look at all the, the wonderful things they're doing with with cancer research and with other types of research. And you're like schizophrenia, we're still doing the same things, still giving them the same medication. Although we still have to do a shout out to to Johns Hopkins School for Consciousness because the stuff that they're doing with psychedelics yes ha- has a lot of promise, especially with depression, very treatment yeah. resistant depression, that's changing lives. We're starting to see with what they're doing, you know, in different places right now. We're starting to see some of that, but it's it's been a long time in coming. You know, yeah, the antidepressants are still the same antidepressants that they were fifty years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. And someone described it to me as if when you pour oil into the car, eventually some of it is going to get into the the part of the engine that uses the oil. And that's such a great visual to think about what antidepressants do. We don't actually know why or how they're working or what it is they're stimulating or moderating, you know? Right. That is true. It's just very true. There are so many really harmful side effects and people who are on the drugs for three years and then they stop becoming effective and then they have to go to something else that's even more powerful. And then they're laden down with two or three or four drugs, which becomes problematic in and of itself. So I'm super excited about this new inquiry into oh oh we we so need it we so need it yeah absolutely what what i have really found and for myself i think i have a great deal of manageable anxiety it's part Mm. of the reason i'm a really good reporter i'm intrepid i obsess the details i have so much energy for these kind of things but i can get waylaid by how i'm feeling if i'm overwhelmed or overstimulated but i have learned how to self-regulate. I've learned that I have to take some time to be mindful throughout the day. I have to drink more water than most people do. I have to sleep eight hours every night and I have to get exercise and light in my eye. And if I can put those things in, I can work really quite intensely for long periods of time. So for you guys, what are the factors that allow you to be as positive, outgoing, and hardworking as you are today? 
well, I'm a little like you in this way and that my anxiety propels me. So when I'm really anxious, I'm super productive, you know, I mean, because my mind is going 3000 miles an hour and Maggie's like going like this, you know, looking every direction and I'm telling her this is what's happening now. And it's it's almost manic that I'm able to get done, you know, more in one day than some people can do in a week. So I can identify with what you're saying for sure. You know, for, for me and Mags, we were not able to manage our anxiety just through lifestyle change. You know, when we were at the height of our panic and OCD and phobias, when a doctor would say to me, you know, oh, you know, you need to eat really healthfully and get sugar out of your diet and you need to be doing cardiovascular exercise 30 minutes a day. I didn't disagree with the soundness of that advice. I, I know that's part of being, having a healthy life, but I couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. So the idea of getting on an exercise bike for 30 minutes, it just literally was impossible yeah. for me and, and for Maggie too. It's like, you know, we, we, we both really wanted to do yoga, but it, that requires you to be able to sort of get yourself out of that, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. And the totally. type of anxiety disorders that Maggie and I experienced were so profound that we were in fight, flight, or freeze just about all day long. And that made it made very little space for lifestyle change at that point. So we, we both started with medication for that reason. Yeah. We started medication to enable us to then make lifestyle changes, which we now have yeah. as the biggest part. How of awesome. We both have to take walks in nature every single day. That's crucial for both of us. Yeah. Um, I can always tell if Maggie hasn't walked yet. She's a little grumpier on the phone. And, and I'll say, all right, go, go for a walk and call me back. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So I'm definitely like, more depressed. I'm definitely more depressed, right? Yeah. And we both are aware that sugar can, like if our blood sugar levels go wonky, that that definitely can increase our anxiety. And we're aware of, of too much caffeine. In other words, we, we now can pay attention to the lifestyle issues. And I agree, you know, sleeping is my superpower. So that stuff really matters to us. But again, it, when we were first dealing with our anxiety disorders, it, it, it wouldn't have been possible for me to get back into the world. I mean, I was, I was stuck in my house. I just couldn't leave. It wouldn't have been possible for me to get out in the world and stop obsessing and having all these rituals and compulsions without some medication to get me to the place where then I learned how to meditate. And we, and we believe in meditation. We believe in breathing, yeah. you know, in, in, in how breathing can take you right out of fight, flight, or freeze. If you do 10 nice deep belly breaths, that will always be able to bring you down from that. But, but I, I hope that that is okay, Maggie, that I mm-hmm. included you in on that. But I think that's true for both of us that we definitely, um, the lifestyle part of it is important, but we had to first get to that. Totally. Honestly, in all of my misgivings about the lack of information about how the antidepressants and mood stabilizers work, they work for some people. Mm-hmm. And I'm for whatever works no bias around the things that are working for people. I don't have a dog in the fight around that kind of issue because- No, we, we get it. I hear from people yeah. all the time about how they save their lives. And I'm I, also interested in how do we make sure we have enough information about the long-term acuity of these drugs, what it is doing to all aspects of our being. I'm really interested in that as well. Yes. Oh, we, we totally agree. And we, we always say the side effects of medication are not side effects. They're front and center effects. And we talk a lot in our book about how there's many things your doctor won't tell you about some of these effects. And there's a lot of things your doctor doesn't even know, uh, which is why Maggie and I have a a list of questions for your prescriber because we feel like you must be an educated consumer when it comes to medication. Yeah, I totally agree. 
And I think the way we've done in our book, in our survival guide, and just in, in sort of our workshops, everything we do, we say there are some techniques that are great if you are sort of dealing with the panic or just severe anxiety right now, right? There's like the, for some people it's breathing, for others there's something we call a spin kit, which is keeping things with you that will soothe your senses and extract you and help you talking to yourself, mantras, all of this. So there's like those things that help in the acute times. And then like you said, there's that idea of like, you know, there's been so much research now out of Japan about just getting out among the trees. When someone's in an acute situation, we know that's probably not the problem solver. You know, nobody's going to take up a hot yoga experience when they're in the midst. of Right, right. Even just like, you know, if you can't, if you can't keep any food down, a healthy diet doesn't seem, doesn't seem helpful. So there's, so we always think like there are these things we do that sort of stabilize our mental health and we know we have to do them still, both of us. I'm also really interested in what type of um, behavioral therapies have actually been helpful to you because I recently in the last two years have been really interested in acceptance and commitment therapy, Uh which I Uh kind of call like the intellectuals approach to understanding psychology. I love it because it combines Zen Buddhism and it combines this really, I think, practical and get out there attitude that I love anyway. Right. You're totally speaking our language. Yeah. 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 So our whole premise of riding the wave is from ACT. Yeah. So tell me, do you guys... Are you working with an ACT practitioner? Do you just do your own study? How is it that you keep up on the tools and Um, the knowledge in that arena? Well, first of all, between the two of us, we've had just about every type of therapy. I'm not joking. Um, um, I'm talking to good consumers here. You guys could actually have had the taste test and chocolate wins ice cream. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, but I, I have to say, you know, and I'm a social worker, so I have my background in that. And Abby's a professional of communications who studied a, a lot of things around um, how we perceive, how we speak to ourselves. And, yeah. and we are constantly going to conferences mm-hmm. as consumers and as anxiety sisters. All We're constantly at conferences and reading new literature to keep ourselves up on what's going on. But yeah, a lot of the acceptance and commitment therapy, that idea of deep acceptance is oh. so much a part we, we call that the very first prerequisite for our secret sauce is accepting. Yeah. So we absolutely subscribe to that. And we also subscribe to a lot of the cognitive behavioral approaches. We're very, we're very big in not believing everything you think and questioning your assumptions and challenging your go-to thoughts. Yeah. We believe in like the practicality of what will help you. Yes. So many different things have helped different people depending on what your issues are. We both have been in therapy for many, many years. We're not at the moment, but we both have been in therapy. That's why I said we've had like just about every time, you know, I've had exposure therapy for phobias. I mean, we've had, we've had just about every type of therapy. So we're, we're very, very familiar with different modalities. And do you have some hope that the combination of this knowledge and the different types of medication and the 
process of getting older is going to somehow reduce your symptoms and make life just a little easier for oh, you? I would say that both of us for quite a while now, we're always going to be anxiety sisters. Like we both are. That is how we are built. We are built this way. Um, we have different types of anxiety, but we're built as anxiety sisters. But in terms of anxiety ruling our lives or us having even really severe sort of panic or Abby having really severe OCD, mm-hmm. that for many years, we've been able to manage that. We've been able to put that, you know, we've used so many of the techniques we talk about in our book, so many of them. And so, you know, we always say the whole thing we want to teach people is how to live so that anxiety doesn't make the decisions for you. Yeah, It doesn't decide that you don't drive to see your cousin or that your thoughts are not going to the to catastrophizing to the point where you can't get anything done. And I think we've been there for a long time. Yeah, that's awesome. That's why we wrote this book. I want to, in just the few minutes we have left, just talk to you. I, I noticed that for me, if I get too distracted on several different technological platforms and scrolling and tabs open and multitasking, that eventually I can actually feel my anxiety rising. And that I have begun to have to take a much more mindful approach to when I go on social media, how I interact with it and what I do. What are your thoughts about the increase self-reporting and anxiety among young people and how tethered they are to their electronic devices? You know, I'm on Facebook quite a bit because we have a big platform there, but um, I laugh. I mean, Abby knows this about me that I'm so illiterate with certain parts of technology that I never have multiple things open. I don't know how to do it. And it's part of the reason why well, she I think does have so, multiple things open, but doesn't know how to get out of anything. <laughs> or I don't know that they're there. Like my, my son is always coming going, mom, you have all this stuff open. And I, and I think that's like been part of why I, I haven't learned more technology is like, yeah. I don't want to. I, you know, I see it with, uh, I worked in a high school for a long time um, and we work with young people a lot, Abby and I, Abby was a college professor and you just see the destructive, the destructiveness. We talk about this all the time. Like if we were that age now, how destructive it is. And, and it's also, um, we once um, spoke to Donald Altman, who's a, who's a psychotherapist and a Buddhist monk and just a wonderful guy. And one of the things he was saying about social media is that It's not just that you're not in your life and you're watching someone else's, but you're literally not experiencing your moments Mm -hmm. when you're on social media because you're experiencing someone else's moments. Right. And there's a fracture in your day, in your, in the moments of your life Mm -hmm. that is so profound, that fracture and so damaging. With, With this generation with phones. Yeah. I have a thing, I don't know, it's a personal thing where I don't take pictures of everything I do. I just, I feel like that will take away from the moment for me. If I, if I have to sit there fumbling with my camera and getting a picture, I'm going to miss the joy of that moment. Yeah. And it, and it aggravates me to no end that, you know, my kids and, and most people, they, they have, it's like, it didn't happen if it's not on film. Yeah. Like it's not film anymore. It's not digital. You know, um, one of the things that really helped me, and I, I, I'd love to get your opinion about this is I found myself going into the fracture that you describe and you, how you just become numb and you're just scrolling, 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 and that sort of, you're becoming more separate from your experience. And so I've started like doing a 
a timer when I go on, knowing that I'm going to go on TikTok and just laugh my ass off. And then when I have a strong opinion, like I think it's really funny or I think it's really offensive or I think it's, I'm really like jealous of someone, you know, what is happening for me then? I really go through this checklist of what is that bringing up and why is that coming up for me? What is it about this particular post that has activated my insecurity, my interest, my intellect. And that way you actually are brought back into your own experience of being yes, on social media. Interesting. Way less relaxing in some ways, yeah. you know, because everybody loves to just zone out, but I feel less fractured. I love That's that so word. I'm going to borrow it. Yeah. I think it's also that on social media, obviously people aren't kind of saying like, yeah, I had a boring dinner with my husband last yeah. night. You know, it was right. We're getting our highlights, but you know, I, I talk to my 18 year old son about this all the time because he's not necessarily on Instagram or Facebook, but he's constantly on websites and reading things. And, you know, you get the worst of humanity on okay. um, people yeah. will say things or um, express things that are just so upsetting. And because they spend so much time on those things, like that's the picture they're getting. Yeah. You know, and I'm constantly trying to reinforce with him that we don't know who these people are, or how many people are doing this or whether this is a real person or we, we just don't know. And I'm, I'm always trying to reflect you know, say to him, like, the whole thing about people is that when we're in community, when we're in real community, and we're really seeing each other and talking to each other, that kind of hatred becomes much harder to do. Yeah, that kind of powerful empathy is one of the things that actually helps our minds become calmer. You know, I really definitely oh, community is one of our biggest anxiety sort of reducing techniques is this idea of connection and community connection as treatment for anxiety. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And depression. Well, you guys have written the book that I really believe needed to be written, The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. And I'm going to hang out on your Facebook page and meet some of your community because it sounds like it's very, very cool people hanging out there. And if people want to follow you or join your online community, tell us how to find you. You can find us on Facebook at uh, The Anxiety Sisters. And I think on Instagram, we're at The Anxiety Sisters. And then our website, which is everything on it is free, free to join. Uh, That's anxietysisters.com. We have a really good panic button which a lot put, gets pushed about 14 to 1700 times a week. We have no way of knowing who pushes it, but wow. apparently it's, it's helpful. So please go try it out. So we have a monthly podcast, the spin cycle, oh, which fantastic. you can find anywhere you can find a podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to know it. I, I will follow for sure. You've been listening to Maggie Sarachek, whose expertise is counseling and teaching people to find strength through community. She was a former social worker in a New York City high school and also specializes in the development of youth leadership, as well as counseling individuals and families. And Abby Greenberg, the sister, started talking at nine months old and clear to this interview today, has not stopped talking since. And we're (laughs) so grateful. Abby. She's got two degrees in the communications field, as well as a certificate in adult education and a master's in fine arts and creative writing. The book, as I said before, is just written in the most embracing open language. It's going to help you feel completely seen and understood. The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. Thank you again for being with us, you two. It was so much fun.
so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up our two-part episode with Abby Greenberg and Maggie Sirachek, authors of The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. You can follow The Anxiety Sisters on Facebook. And if you're listening and you love our content, give us a thumbs up or a review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts. And that was the show. Thanks for your support of Beyond Well. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to your friends. If you want to reach me individually, you can always reach out at Sheila at Beyond Well Media. And I hope you make it a great day. Bora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Bora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.